Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Recursive Podcast. Our next guest helps startup founders build their mental strength and resilience needed to grow their businesses. Velina Getova is an organizational psychologist, psychotherapist, and a performance coach. She is the founder of Not Your Therapy, which provides psychological support in the workplace. She has a degree in social and organizational psychology from the London School of Economics and is an alumni of the American University in Bulgaria. With more than 10 years in human development, she has worked with multinational corporations, with tech startups, with universities, but also non-profit organizations in Bulgaria, in the US and the UK. Velina's long year experience led her to the realization that the most needed skill in the future is not only our ability to learn, but also our ability to manage our interior state. Velina, welcome to the Recursive Podcast. I'm very happy that you're here. Thank you, Irina, for the invitation. I wonder where to start because you um, have your startup experience as well. <laughs> And it, in a way, it was also the experience where you've learned that this is not you, that you would like to go on a different path. Um, yeah, maybe let's go back to that. Mm -hmm. What did you learn from being part of a startup? Um, and why at some point you had to be honest with yourself and say, this is not my world? Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> You're bringing me back a couple of years ago, which feels like 10 or 20, but it was just maybe four or five years ago. Uh, my startup journey was um, very natural. I would say it wasn't something that I was pursuing from like from the beginning of my mm -hmm. career, it just happened organically uh, out of opportunity, knowing the right people, having the space, having the knowledge and skills to contribute to the uh, last company that I was part of. It was actually my last job indeed before I started Not Your Therapy. Um, and uh, the moment that I realized this is maybe not for me was the, the, my everyday experience when I was feeling that constantly Um, I feel that um, I'm feeling exhausted or my energy is never the right state or that I'm not only out, out of my comfort zone every day, but out of my talent zone. So there is a very mm -hmm. th thin difference between being out of your comfort zone, which is amazing. It's great for your growth. It enables you to stretch yourself beyond your abilities, but it's very different than being outside of your talent zone. Mm -hmm. And for me, it took maybe half a year or a year to understand that uh, it's not just the out of the comfort zone thing and the challenge, but I'm actually out of my talent zone. This is something that you can observe uh, looking inwards, but you can outside uh, mm. with your colleagues, with your co-founders. Uh, one thing was energy. Do you constantly feel that Uh, you know, having the energy that you want to, that you constantly need to stretch yourself. You're feeling that regardless of your effort, it's never good enough or it's not the way it, it should be. And I know my words right now maybe resonate with a lot of people who experience this and think that this is part of startup life. But still, there should be those moments that you feel you're in flow. There should be still those moments that you feel accomplished. There should be still those moments when you feel, I have actually done this right. Mm -hmm. And for me, it was maybe a whole year of feeling that my energy is not at the levels that I want it to be, regardless of anything I try to do with meditation and fitness and investing in my well-being, because I was constantly out of my talent zone. And um, I realized that there is a very specific skill set that requires for somebody to be successful in the early stages of a startup, right? Yeah. 
and my skill set and my strengths. So I did a different strengths profilers. And also I was already in therapy. I was doing, I was already in the second year of my psychotherapy degree in education. Yeah. And, uh, there was a, it was a journey of self discovery and connection with your authentic self and appreciating your own value and seeing that you, your skills are in a completely different uh, sphere. And I saw that at that point, the company needed something completely different. It's not that my skill set was not valuable, but for this stage of where we are with that company and the challenges that we were facing, there were different skills that were more needed right now, mm-hmm. especially in my role. So it was a very tough choice, even though I really loved my job and I loved my team and I felt that it was my baby and it was part because I was an advisor to that company before I joined. Mm. So it was really personal decision. But I saw that I'm, um, yeah, I'm not contributing with my talents to the maximum and it's really costing me my health and my energy. But I guess you can come to a conclusion like that where you would fairly know your talents or at least have the confidence that you have these talents. Um, I wonder how many of us never really reached that point. Mm -hmm. At least um, me being surrounded also quite often with young people, Mm -hmm. it often feels like um, they've... I myself personally, I don't even knew what my talents are until I got 30. So... um, what is the best way to discover them and to develop also this confidence that, okay, I might not be good for that kind of environment or for that kind of job, but I know that I will be better off or I will grow according to my talent skill in a, in a different setting. How do you develop this kind of confidence? I think it's, it definitely, it comes with maturity and with life experience as well. So genuinely around 30, this is the actual uh, phase of, um, you know, adults growing up emotionally and mm-hmm. psychologically, even though we feel that at our 20s, we are already adults. So actually, we see and from experience that emotionally, very often we go through this 30s, like 30 year crisis, uh, reconnecting with our identity. So it's more than natural that we need this first five or 10 years of our professional life, navigating, experimenting, trying different roles. So actually pushing and trying to have this decision earlier. I'm not sure whether it's maybe the best way to go. Um, I think the best mindset would be to go and experiment with different roles, mm-hmm. to try different things, but really with a scientist mindset, with a learner mindset, not with the rigid mindset that I need to find the first thing. And if it's mm-hmm. not it, then I'm a failure and that that's not for me. With a little bit of a more flexible rather than a rigid approach, mm-hmm. uh, trying different things, it just really like, understanding making your goal for your first 10 years of your life five that my goal is to really see uh, where are my strengths and mm-hmm. where i can bring the biggest value and actually having an answer to that question by the time that you're 30 can be the best possible goal but i know the pressure from the startup industry is completely different by the time you're 30 most probably should have had your first startup you should maybe have already an acquisition or be a manager uh, buy your own flat and a car and a lot of other things while I think we should be a little bit more realistic with our expectations by our, from, from ourselves and from our peers as well. We shouldn't have had, we shouldn't have everything figured out by the time we're 30. Sure. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Even though it looks like we should, but, um, no, I think, I think the journey actually is just at the beginning. Though. Yeah. Or maybe I was a slow developer. I can't say, but actually I invested a lot of time in, you know, studying my interior and understanding yeah. who am I and 
why am I doing certain things the way that I'm doing them, repeating certain mistakes again and again. Yeah. So I don't think that I was such a slow learner in this sense, but the journey, at least for me, started probably when I was around 30, maybe short mm. before that. Yeah. Um, okay, there are so many things that I want to question <laughs> right now um, and, you know, trying to put them in my head. But I think I'm going to stay a bit also with the timeline of your career yeah. and ask you about a, a different experience and a different period in your life. We have here, at least in the podcast, spoken a lot about the culture that was developed in Telerik progress. Mm -hmm. Also because in this environment, a lot of entrepreneurs uh, found their own birth and they continued their path afterwards. Many of them are now leading um, very successful startups here in, in Bulgaria. Mm -hmm. And in this sense, you were pretty much part of that journey and you were also someone who proactively created this culture. I want to ask you from your perspective, what has been done differently there? How this company became such a fertile ground first for growth that we have never seen in a Bulgarian tech company before. And second, a fertile ground for so many other entrepreneurs to uh, gain their confidence and to go out in the world mm. and try their own thing. I think around 50 or 60 companies have been created by former employees of uh, Telerik and Progress? You know, that's such a synchronicity right now because this question is coming in the right moment and I'm, I'm about to record one video about that soon for another purpose, but it's actually helping me to prepare. So I still believe there, that there are no coincidences. Um, I've been thinking about this this week, exactly. Well, okay. It's weird. It's, <laughs> it's a bit spooky, to be honest, because that was for me, that was 10 years ago. So now it's 2023. Uh, when I joined the Telerik, it was 2010, and I left in 2013. So that was 13 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, one thing that I remember very clearly, it's my journey actually started before joining the company. I was fresh out of AOBG, out of college, mm -hmm. had no experience in HR, in psychology, uh, working with people. Yeah, a little bit because I was in the student radio, but professionally, my major was in business and JMC in journalism and mass yeah. communication. I thought I'm going to be a journalist and I had a lot of internships in economy media and I thought I'm going to be in writing and things like that. So I had no idea that I would end up in HR. And I remember my interview with uh, Vasil Terziev and then my manager, my first manager, Christo Gurgiev, with whom we actually now work through <laughs> our other companies. And I remember this interview, which I was completely unprepared. It was my first interview and it felt so natural. And the moment that I left the interview, I, I left with this sense, you know how sometimes you go to an interview, to an important presentation and you leave with this self-doubt or questioning. So did I answer this answer, did the question correctly? Mm -hmm. Did I say the right thing? Did I make the right impression? Oh my God, you know, I, I was asked these very challenging questions. How did I do? And I remember very clearly, I left this interview with a complete sense of relief and like, that was cool. And I, I, I left this interview with a sense of uh, belief in myself. Mm -hmm. And I was like, so HR sounds interesting because they interviewed me for an HR role and I had no experience in that. And still in that interview, somehow Vasil and Christo 
creating an environment that helped me feel capable and competent mm -hmm. in something that I was obviously not. So I think creating this environment that leaves you hunger, hungry for not. So I left the interview feeling I can do that. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting, which is, I think, the most important combination for success, because a lot of us sometimes feel, oh, that's very interesting. I want to do it. But I have the belief or the limiting perception. Can I do that? Am I... Mm -hmm. prepared, you know, there was no self doubt out of that experience with them. And they created this environment in that conversation, wow. okay. which I didn't really maybe reflect on this back then, but now from with my experience, looking backwards. And when they said, I was sure, you know, when you leave the interview, and then we, we were I was waiting, for I didn't know even Vasil was the CEO, I had no clue who I'm meeting, I was so junior, you know, <laughs> didn't even prepare who am I meeting at that, at that point. And we stayed in front of the elevator. And uh, Vasil showed me his kids on the phone and we were laughing and it felt so natural. But I think this is the environment that they created in that company. So it's challenging, it's interesting, but creating a, a, a sense of self-belief in employees that you can do that. Mm -hmm. well, mm. <clears throat> one of those mm -hmm. entrepreneurs who came out of the Telerik success yeah. was also you. <laughs> were yeah. you? Yeah? Yeah. Because... Not your therapy is your own venture? Yes, it is. Do you I see mean. yourself as an entrepreneur? Can you relate to um, the struggles that maybe also one of uh, some of your clients are going through? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, even though I don't employ a lot of people, mm -hmm. I am by myself and I work with colleagues, with contractors mm -hmm. on the different projects. Um, my mentor asked me a couple of years ago when I was building the strategy for not your therapy and he asked me whether I should be the whether I want to be a businessman or a craftsman mm -hmm. um, meaning that okay I start in the field of psychology performance coaching do I want to continue doing the artwork the coaching mm -hmm. the, the essence or I want to build a business where most probably I'm going to be managing other people processes financing and, and stuff like that and other people will be doing the art and at that point I I, I decided I want to be the craftsman. Still, four years later, I still want to believe that I'm the craftsman. But this doesn't... Uh, I still be, see myself as an entrepreneur as well, because even though I still do the job by myself, there are a lot of similar challenges that I experience in terms of creating a market for myself, having the right value proposition and the right product that is really going to help solve people's challenges. Um, I'm also experiencing a lot of fluctuation in my own self-belief and mm. my own self-esteem and, um, and in the mission, why am I doing this? And however, mm -hmm. it's very hard. Sometimes you, you feel that it's you against the world when things get critical. Um, I'm also experiencing difficulties with financing and fluctuations in income and all those things, maybe in a much smaller scale. Mm -hmm. But still, I do consider myself an entrepreneur because... What, when you look at the definition, I look at the definition of entrepreneurship in the morning. So it means somebody who is mobilizing resources. In my case, I'm mobilizing my contacts, my experience, my knowledge, and everything that I've built, uh, financial resources, as well, in order to create something new with an economic value, and you assume full responsibility for it. Mm -hmm. So if I take this definition, I definitely do all those three things, but maybe in a smaller scale, not as a CEO of a scale up, but emotionally and psychologically, I do feel I have a similar experience as an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's very interesting in the <clears throat> past couple of um, 
podcasts, we somehow always come to the question of what makes an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. And um, I kind of like hear that again and again, that not everybody is, you know, having the right skill set for being an entrepreneur. Um, pretty much from what I've heard, it boils down to the ability or the readiness to take on risk. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but I still want to hear from your perspective, you know, having also the experience now of uh, building a business, but maintaining, you know, your expertise as, as being, a, you know, an artist or the, the crafts person in this business, going into contact with also so many leaders mm -hmm. and so many startup founders. Um, what is necessary for an entrepreneur to be a good one? or to be a healthy one? Mm -hmm. I don't know how to even phrase the question. Um, I actually, these are two question. different questions, <laughs> yes, I yes. think. Let's split yeah. them. So why yeah. is it, what does it take for an entrepreneur to be uh, successful at mm -hmm. entrepreneurship? Yeah. And what was the other one? To be a healthy one. Yeah. To do it in a healthy <laughs> and sustainable way. Um, okay, I'll maybe try to answer both. Yeah because they are related. So I think in my mind, being healthy and successful is the same thing. I first want to start with that because in our understanding in society, what I see in hustling startup culture, sometimes these two um, go in the opposite directions mm -hmm. in our perception, but they're not. And I think we first have to start with understanding that being healthy and successful is the same thing. If you're successful, but not healthy, healthy that's not success. And if you are healthy, but not successful, mm -hmm. You know, well, depends on your values. But again, if you do have ambitions and goals and you want to have an impact in the world, but if you don't have the physical, mental, emotional health to do that, what kind of success we are talking about? Mm -hmm. So the first thing starts with this idea that you can have it all. And I remember, um, I just mentioned to you, I attended Mind Valley University and uh, Vishen Wakian, he's a very mm -hmm. successful entrepreneur. Uh, already he built an amazing personal development platform. Mm -hmm. He quoted uh, Sister Zuckerberg who said, so there are a couple of things in life. You have health, family, relationships, freedom, innovation. You have to pick three and focus on that. That's, that's a myth that we create our, ourselves. And mm -hmm. I, I believe we should start be a little bit, we should start being a little bit more courageous and, and, and think we can have it all, but maybe not in the same, in the same time. Okay. So it first starts with this idea, combining and integrating those aspects of entrepreneurship, being healthy and success with one and the same thing. Mm -hmm. This, the answer to your question starts with, let's look at the propensities, what are the specific traits? There's a lot of research already looking into that. Um, entrepreneurs, people who start, they're not necessarily the ones that are going to stay as CEOs long-term. We're speaking about early entrepreneurs, right? People yes. Who, they usually walk a very thin tightrope between self-belief, mm -hmm. or some would even say arrogance or extreme confidence or hubris, and self-doubt, being critical, being self-critical, being curious, what mm -hmm. I mentioned, being a learner, having a learner mindset. And the combination of these two different mental states, it's very challenging to be able to be humble and curious and have a learner and, and, and challenge yourself and, and have the mindset that maybe very often you're wrong and there are better ways of doing things, but at the same time, having a very strong, deeper self-belief that no matter what happens with the business, you're going to be okay. So I think having this delicate balance between these two mental states is fundamental. 
so mm-hmm. you, you don't go into either of the extremes. Uh, it starts with the having a healthy self-esteem, which we know uh, starts with, you know, your first couple of years in your family, even in the womb. Mm-hmm. But that's maybe a whole different story. We can elaborate more on that later on. So that's one thing. And the second thing in order to be healthy, we know the founder syndrome about people who identify with their business 100% and then they don't have a life or other identities outside of it. I can see even from our, our Eastern European context and our startup environment, when we look at the profiles of the most successful people, I'm sure people that you are interviewing, we're going to see that they have also other very well-developed identities. It's not just the founder of the business. They also, their fathers, uh, mothers, they're also friends, daughters, skiers, surfers, uh, people from Varna, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> Romanians, and um, they do belong to different groups that they, they, they also relax and they also serve as a support system for their success in the business. So... I think the successful founders really have the skill to first not take things personally and have this very healthy emotional detachment. So Mm -hmm. giving a hundred percent of your effort, but emotionally detaching from the results, Mm -hmm. which is very, very difficult and having other identities and spheres of life where you also achieve and you feel your sense of belonging, a sense of appreciation. So no matter what happens in the business, you still have a ground solid foundation for where you are. I wonder if uh, this idea <clears throat> of the founder who is 100% identified with their mm-hmm. uh, job, who might be even sleeping in their offices. I mean, we hear a lot of myths about um, Elon Musk. Also others. Is, not, is it a realistic... Are they the, let's say, the extraordinary founders who can actually do that? one of a a small percentage of people who can actually live by this way? Are they outliers? Or have we built a totally wrong idea of what a startup entrepreneurship is about? What do you think? I, when you make me, when, you know, when you, when you speak about it, you do make me remember that most of the successful founders that are here in our region, they usually have a family. They Mm -hmm. usually have a, at least one or few kids. They usually Mm -hmm. have also a hobby that they're really passionate about. Exactly. Yeah. And it's usually kind of like a sport if it's kite surfing or tennis or, you know, something similar or climbing mountains. Yeah. Yeah. Or climbing mountains. Yeah. Um, what, then how did we develop this wrong idea of the sociopathic entrepreneur who is sleeping in their offices and has a, a totally crashed personal life and is eating pizza? Mm-hmm. I don't know. When did we develop that? <laughs> <laughs> so I've been pondering the same question. And um, I think it's the issue is is individual, but also it's, it's both individual and societal and contextual. So there are different factors. Mm-hmm. Uh, parenting style, generational sp- specifics that we have, the environment. So um, I can speak only from my experience and my perspective, but I, I guess it's a much more complex question. How did we end up 
I think, yeah, I wanted to answer something on the first point, but I'm going to get back to this. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, even uh, even Elon Musk, I think there is the re- more recent interviews that he actually did an experiment with himself. I'm going to try to find the interview, maybe mm-hmm. post it as a comment that even, yes, okay, he experimented with a period of his life where he slept around four hours or less. But after that, he also, uh, he challenged himself and he looked at how the results really in the company was starting to decrease and his own personal abilities. So that's, even for him, that was something that was damaging in the long term and it wasn't sustainable. I'm going to find this interview and mm-hmm. I will, will share this with, uh, with, with the audience. Um, yes, yeah, so there, are, there is a small percentage of people who have a specific DNA, in their DNA, a specific, they're born this way, that they can survive with less than seven hours of sleep chronically, consistently over time. But this percentage is around one or one or two. I have to check mm-hmm. the data. I think it was in Matthew Walker's book, While We Sleep. The rest of us, a regular human being, 99% of the population need between seven and nine hours, and that's it. Mm-hmm. So um, sometimes, yeah, we do get overwhelmed and excited about these role models, uh, but biologically, this is what the science and, 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 and our human experience shows. So expecting that we're going to be this 1% is a bit egocentric, isn't it? <laughs> expecting that each and one of us is born with this capability. It's very little probability that we're among this 1%. Mm-hmm. And, and on the other part of the question, how did we end up here? I think, again, yeah, it's a parenting style from the last uh, 30, 40 years, uh, 50 maybe, uh, in Bulgaria, in specific, uh, entrepreneurship is very much related to the economic development after the changes, the democratic changes. So our generation had this uh, un- unseen opportunity at the same time. And um, in a way, we realized a lot of the dreams of our parents where maybe not of our parents or grandparents had opportunity to go to school, to study in university, uh, to do to, to get involved in the knowledge economy. And all mm-hmm. of a sudden, we are the first maybe generation, first or second generation who are involved in the knowledge economy. And that's why for our parents, it's so important that we do stuff with our minds. We have a good degree. We build something meaningful and we use our skill set. So in a way, I'm looking at our Eastern European culture. We are, we have this legacy on a national cultural level as well that you want to make it up. And, uh, yeah, on a psychological level, I think we, uh, generation that is growing, generation Y and Z, we are, we have a lot of freedom, but we also are maybe the most lost generation mm-hmm. because what was keeping our sense of self stable before were very solid social and, and social family economic framework so mm-hmm. the institution of the family was very rigid we know for example if you are born in um, like say well, a small village in eastern europe and your father is a ship owner and has a farm most probably you're also involved in the farm there's very little choice about what you do for a career mm-hmm. you follow what's in the family for generations and for the first time we have a very flexible social framework, family framework, and we have a lot of freedom to find ourselves in this world, which is a responsibility that we are not always ready to assume Mm -hmm. in those early years of our 20s, because a lot of things are not defined. Before, a lot of the things were predefined for us. What you work, who you marry, what you do, and now a lot of things are undefined, and we have to define them. 
and we're not always prepared for this. And the choice, the paradox of choice, we know it gives you a lot of freedom, but sometimes we can't. And once we create a, a venture or something that we have made ourselves, it's a free choice, but at the same time comes with this sense of, you know, this is your mission in life. This is something that you created. This is something that you um, designed for yourself. And that's why it's very, very difficult to detach because it's a personal choice. It's not something that was defined for you. It's something you made for yourself. <clears throat> that's on the psychological issue, I guess. Other people can elaborate more on of the social course, and economical. <clears throat> In your practice, you work mostly with, uh, with leaders mm -hmm. and many of them are actually founders of uh, startup yeah. companies. <clears throat> now, knowing all these preconceptions that we have mm -hmm. about startup culture and uh, still trying to adapt it to our reality and um, culture also yeah. in Southeast Europe, I wonder how difficult is it for you to assess if the culture in one company is healthy or not? Mm -hmm. How do you see the, the flaws or the things that are um, not going well? Mm -hmm. Which are the main symptoms that... Yeah also usually fall into yeah. um, okay. into the into the foreground so a healthy founder most probably create a healthy culture right <laughs> okay <laughs> only one <welcome. laughs> on the previous example i just <clears throat> thought of an example with the clients who maybe i'm going to mention it afterwards uh, because i do have right now an example in my mind i would say a healthy culture is the one where what i see from my experience being in organizations and consulting is if the dialogue changes once the leader comes in terms of content and tone, that means there is an issue. If the dialogue is the same, so we continue talking about the same things and mm -hmm. with the same tone and voice, regardless of whether the founder is there or not, mm -hmm. it's, it's a symptom of a healthy culture. It's the same whether we are going on with the same ways of doing business, whether the founder is there or not. So if we're just doing our usual thing, even if uh, the leader is not there, again, it's a sign of a healthy culture. It means that we know what is our role. We have assumed responsibility. We don't need, um, you know, we don't need pressure or guidance. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We, we have this internal locus of control. We understand the values. We understand what's expected of us. And we feel that the leaders have trust in us to do our jobs. Very often, the dialogue and the conversation change. There is one conversation when people are just hanging out on the balcony or mm -hmm. during team, team building or something. When the leader comes, if the dialogue changes, then there is an issue. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's okay. one. That's interesting. That's one <clears throat> thing. And I've seen it sometimes when I speak to founders, when I have a coaching, because sometimes when we do performance coaching, I look at it from a systemic point of view, because it's never just the person, right? So we have to look at how this person communicates and interacts with the others. And when I speak to, to the leader and then I speak to his team and to other stakeholders, to the co-founders, and then you get this 360 view, you can see sometimes there are some discrepancies. And maybe the other thing for a healthy culture is knowing that we have each other's back. And if I do a mistake, that's mm -hmm. not going to be used against me in the future. So even if you fail, if you do a mistake, if you say something that it's not correct or something, that's not going to be used against your, you in the future. And, and okay. I think that's a real example of how we should tolerate failure because sometimes in startup cultures we say, oh yeah, we embrace failure and everything. Yes, of course. But are we going to use this as a... That's interesting. You see what I mean? <clears throat> that's very interesting. Mm -hmm. um, 
recently uh, someone said to me that kind of like stuck with my mind yeah. that um, in a way giving but also receiving feedback mm -hmm. is a skill set. It's yeah. not something that comes naturally. Yes. <laughs> <clears throat> and especially with people who are um, not always confident, um, receiving feedback can be a very painful experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I kind of like started seeing that a bit more when I moved back to Bulgaria. I don't know if it's a comparison that I can actually make. But also talking to other leaders who were not necessarily coming from here, they would say, oh, why are Bulgarians actually always so defensive? I don't know if it's a thing. Maybe you can <laughs> um, make the comparison. But I always felt like we're really bad at, um, you know, receiving negative feedback. I remember how crushed I felt when I was 23 and my boss was giving me like, uh, not really hard time, but, you know, sharing a certain disappointment or I did something wrong. It felt like... I was worth nothing. And it took me years and years of practice to come to the conclusion that, yeah, sometimes I would fail, but it wouldn't mean that I'm a bad professional or mm. whatever. It is really hard job to do. So I wonder how these things correlate with the, of course, romantic idea of how we're going to embrace failure. And I hear that a lot. And at the same time, for me as a leader, it's sometimes really challenging to give ne negative feedback, you know, <laughs> and but you can't not not do it because you still want people to grow, to do certain things better over time. And it's a very thin line. I don't mm. know how you navigate on that. I think it comes back again to uh, how emotionally you are attached to what you do mm. and how you see your value as a result of the results in your business. And believing that, um, yeah, mistakes don't really leave this imprint. We feel that they sometimes leave an, um, a, a print on our identity or on our mm -hmm. value as a person. Well, if we do really believe we are with a growth mindset, I mean, a, a mistake is just a mistake. We focus on the learning. It doesn't have a significant impact on my self-worth as a human being. And I think uh, it really starts from there, as I mentioned, having this solid, grounded in reality, self-esteem, uh, which gives you a lot of openness towards feedback. Um, but also I think because Bulgarians, we are culture, we are very communal. So what is negative feedback? Negative feedback, if we look at it from a psychological perspective, in a very basic terms can be perceived as a rejection from the peer group if you decide mm -hmm. to perceive it this way. And a rejection... Yeah, you don't really decide. In most of the cases, you actually react very automatically. <laughs> that's why I say, you know, it's it, that's a little bit of mental fitness, what I'm talking exactly, about. Yeah. We always have mm -hmm. a choice. Mm -hmm. And I think with negative, with feedback, critical feedback, it's about our perception of it, whether we're going to see it as a gift, as something that adds on, on our value, or it's something that reaps off of our value. And if we look at it, that's why we, we can't really change the construct. We can teach people how to give it, of course, but it's always learning how to receive it first that comes, that makes a big difference. And because we are very communal society, um, we are very much oriented towards being perceived and accepted by the group. And as you say, on an automatic level, if we don't work on ourselves, if we receive, if we perceive criticism as a threat for my belonging to the group, on mm -hmm. a psychological level, this really triggers the amygdala. It could say, actually, you might die mm -hmm. because thousands of years ago, if you're rejected by the group, you have the potential to die. Mm -hmm. 
So it's a very automatic process that we have to enlighten a little bit and to see where our reactions come from and maybe change our perspective on feedback. Because right now, even if you give your employee, even, even when I give to my clients feedback, critical feedback, or we do coaching session, I challenge them. I challenge mm-hmm. very often. It's, it's a gift, you know, nothing's going to happen. You leave the session and no one knows about it. Just you and me has no, it has no impact. You're still going to have food on the table. You're still going to be a parent. You still have someone to hook tonight. You still have where to live, you know? So, uh, looking at our perceptions and what, what we make feedback mean for us and our identity is very important. Mm -hmm. And people who hold things lightly, are much more flexible and open. And I remember even from that startup that I worked mm. with, we had one hour, one colleague, she was like, she was using this negative inquiry too. I actually suggest everybody to check it out. What, what negative is Negative inquiry. So yeah. some, when someone gives you a negative feedback, for example, now we look at the interview afterwards and mm-hmm. you say, well, Veli, look here, maybe you didn't allow enough space to listen to my question or you didn't, you respond very fast and something and didn't work out. Instead of putting the shield, Oh, but that, that, this wasn't my intention. Immediately, the defense mechanisms wants to make us right. Mm. So we want it to be, because we want to be accepted. We want to belong. Instead of defending ourselves, we can, we can be curious and say, all right, I, I wasn't aware I was doing that. Tell me more. Mm-hmm. So instead of closing, even physically, instead of closing, I actually challenge my, uh, my, my clients sometimes to open up to the, to the physical experience of receiving critical feedback with curiosity. So tell me more. Mm-hmm. Where exactly did I do? Show me. I want to know. And this completely shifts the dynamic in, mm-hmm. in the conversation. Mm-hmm. But it gets a little, it takes a little bit of courage to stay in the discomfort. Yeah, I'm not saying it's completely comfortable to open up your, to open mm-hmm. yourself. But we entrepreneurs, <clears throat> we do a lot of uncomfortable things, right? We do, yeah. So it, it's about tolerating a little bit and learning. Okay, it's a little bit dis- uncomfortable, but it's... I had a you know? long years ago, I had a colleague, he was actually a graphic designer, but in his private life, he was, um, <clears throat> I think, learning karate, but I'm not sure, yeah. or kung fu, something martial arts. <laughs> <laughs> in any way, <clears throat> he was teaching me a lot about communication by making metaphors that he learned actually yeah. from martial arts. And I remember at some point I was talking to someone, um, the other person was rather judgmental and it was a repeating pattern so the, the other day will be judgmental again and again and i was trying different things of how to deal with that because it felt also very personal mm. the the whole judgment i remember at some point i decided you know what i'm not going to be the person that is currently attacked i just imagined it in my head mm. if i look at the situation and that would be me who is being attacked now. This is the other person who is actually, you know, throwing all this judgment. And then I decided, I'm going to step away from the situation and I'm going to observe what is really happening here. Mm. But I stepped away from the person who was actually attacked and who was experiencing all this pain mm. of, of, of the judgment at this point. And it was amazing because I didn't have to react. Mm. I didn't have to put myself in this defensive mechanism. Mm. I could just say, well, I'm going to take this judgment for now and I'm going to decide at a later point if I'm going to work with that or not. I'm just going to you know, receive mm-hmm. it, keep it, but I'll decide afterwards if you're right or not. Yeah. I don't even need to respond right now. And it was, it was amazing mm-hmm. uh, also for me at this point. But I think <clears throat> because you said it's a decision, um, I think we first need to work pretty much on making it a decision, you know, creating the space between... Yeah. 
perceiving the situation and then reacting yeah. on it. <laughs> yes, um, Victor Frankl beautifully put it between stimulus and response. Exactly. This space. I didn't so, want to put it that scientifically. Yeah. Um, so, do you think that um, in order to create the space, we need to dive deep into our patterns? that were created quite often in our childhood, mm. most probably were by the first um, uh, caregivers, parents, or, or whoever yeah. that actually was? Or could we just um, do it with uh, a certain meditation and coaching and, you know, performance exercises? I don't know. How deep is one must be ready to go mm-hmm. in order to study themselves and learn how to deal with with mm-hmm. certain patterns i don't know did i put my question correctly? yeah i understand yeah. is there yeah <clears throat> do we need that to do is. the psychotherapy every time or can we just do some coaching i think a lot of people are actually looking for <laughs> you know um an easy <laughs> oh, they want to go do a psychedelic ritual session and just you know cut through it <laughs> we're looking for the shortcuts and somehow we somehow yeah. we always want to perform and perform and perform yeah. and even if we do the psychedelics we're going to do it in order to increase our to performance increase, yeah which to, is crazy isn't to, it yeah to get the shortcut <laughs> as i say to therapy rather yeah. than the you know deep are there shortcuts in therapy I guess it depends on how big the pain is. Okay. So what I've seen, motivation, just like in entrepreneurship, comes with personal pain. If your pain is very big, you have a big motivation to dig deeper. Mm-hmm. Some people are addicted to pain, but that's another story. But uh, it really depends on our motivation and how big of an impact we see as a result of this dysfunction that we observe in our behavior. Or I'm going to give you an example like, I had a I had a client who was basically he recommended he actually approached me so I can coach his colleague not himself. Okay, <laughs> interesting. <laughs> it usually happens like that. So <clears throat> first I'm coaching somebody else, and then we actually get to the person that we really need to coach. But that's okay. And I remember we had a discussion in 2020 where uh, we spoke about the other person, but we also discussed a little bit about the dynamics in between the two and their company. And it was very clear at that point that this other founder, you know, at my points, he was also having some struggles with his own well-being and mm. his expectations of himself and everything. And he was really, he uh, took this role of a savior and, and the solver mm. and the fixer. And he was there for everybody. And really enjoy it. He, you could see from the way he speaks about his business. He, he really enjoyed his leadership. He really enjoyed being the savior. Okay. He derived the word of self-worth in being in this role of who is always there to solve the problem and to, 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 to save other people. He, it was a big part of his identity. But at that point, the pain was not big for him mm-hmm. because he still, the, the business was kind of running okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but people were happy. There were no, uh, yeah, okay, so the pool surveys, they were showing some issues, but generally there were good results, engagement, clients were happy. Uh, they just had some confounder things. And at that point, the pain was not such, so big, so he could, he wasn't motivated at all to, to look at it. I actually questioned him a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said, yeah, I have my tools to deal with that. I understand. Da, 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 da. Can you coach my, co- can you coach my co- colleague? <laughs> you know, he has, the colleague wanted to be coached, which was great. So I coached the colleague. And then two years later, the colleague was okay. They were, the company was still, there were some challenges. However, that person was already, so uh, they were 
like he was experiencing physical symptoms. Insomnia was already part of his everyday for months. Mm. And at that point, he wasn't in a state to really continue with his role. And they had to make a very difficult decision that actually the other, the other co-founder would step in as a CEO and he mm-hmm. had to step back. And then the pain was big, as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. Because and he lost a whole part of his identity, I guess. Mm-hmm. Or- it was a process. <laughs> it was part of the coaching, stepping down mm-hmm. from that role, but still being pardoned because he didn't leave the He's just stepping down from the operational role. And it was a process where we had to find a new role for him, but also give him the space to work on his well-being because he had like uh, arthritis. He had like physical symptoms of anxiety um, mm-hmm. and, and other things from chronic stress that we observe very much, not only on the psychological level, but on the physical level as well. So he really needed time to heal. And it was a process of really re- mm-hmm. redefining my own identity, finding my space in the business. And then the pain was really big and the, the motivation likewise it was also big. Yeah. yeah. And then we actually had a conversation and I was like, can you imagine what could have happened if we started doing, if we started doing something different in 2020 when we met? Mm-hmm. And I had a little bit of personal, that's when I need to work on my boundaries because I felt a bit guilty that I didn't probe more. You didn't, okay. But <clears throat> we're learning from our mistakes, right? So. Which brings me also to another topic where uh, I feel like we need to debunk maybe some preconceptions. So lately we talk a lot about burnout. No, oh my god! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, first of all, it's the peak of the iceberg. It is the peak so of the iceberg. What about other things exactly. as well underneath? Um, and it's very weird because we talk a lot about it. We, I think, we kind of like accepted that this is a real thing, mm-hmm. but at the same time. Most of us, I don't think they know what that is. <laughs> um, I know that you also had your personal experience with, mm. with, with, with burnout. Is it something real with leaders of, and entrepreneurs? Is that something that is happening? Or is it quite often also mixed up with, I don't know, um, a depression or... Mm. Um, mm-hmm. So... They're very different individual cases. Uh, I think everybody has their own experience, but it is burnout is a real thing. It's a phenomenon. It's already defined by the World Health Organization as an existing human condition, which happens in the context of work. So it's no joke, for sure. Mm-hmm. Very often it is accompanied by other symptoms, and especially if we catch it at the later stages. The, the final stages of burnout, because there are different stages. Right? One scientist said there are 12. The updated model is five stages of burnout. Usually in the final stages of burnout, the clinical the clinical picture and the symptoms and everything is very similar, like depression. Okay. Almost like the same experience and, and symptoms we observed in both cases. So they very much go together also with a heightened sense of anxiety, mm-hmm. with slow self-esteem, uh, for some people can be accompanied already by some form of physical condition, which is also, from my point of view, related to the emotional stress, like an autoimmune disease or, mm-hmm. as I said, chronic arthritis or back pain. Or we have, I have had so many clients coming with uh, stomach aches, reflux or chronic migraines, mm-hmm. unexplained by all the GPs, all the doctors, and then we're, they're going through all these different scans and expensive tests in order to find out that 
physically there is no obvious reason and it starts with uh, chronic levels of stress and unprocessed emotions. Mm-hmm. So it's never just one thing. For me, my personal experience, I've written about it. For me, it was burnout, chronic pharyngitis. That's why I even mentioned before the interview that mm-hmm. I still, from that point, I have a chronic pharyngitis and I have to always look after my throat because it's my it's throat chakra. It's, uh, it's my weak spot and I have to look after it. But for two months, I lost my voice. And I literally, I was speaking like this. Mm-hmm. Even though I tried to go back to work after I left the startup, I tried and the moment I was getting some contracts, my voice was, you know, it was w- what kind of sign, w- what kind of more obvious sign do you need yeah. in order to hear that the body says no. So Gabor Mate has this beautiful book on chronic stress and physical illness. So for me, it was that. And also I had a miscarriage mm-hmm. and all of that happened within two or three months. So it's never just one thing. Uh, and we have to be very curious about the real reasons, internal psychological, our own mental models and learnings and trauma and experiences we have, but also environmental. Mm. In the but stress is also such a, such a fuzzy thing because in certain cases, stress can be good stress. It could be an excitement. It of could course. be something that is actually pushing you forward. Of when course. does it become, you know, this destro- destructive thing on your psyche and, and also on yeah. your body and how do we discriminate mm. between the two so it's the good and the, sh- the good and the best stress levels uh, the, the, the bad stress I think there is a word written on this and um, I would I would explain in this way just like we go to lift weights we need recovery afterwards because during rest mm-hmm. the physical and mental muscles recover we are uh, secreting the growth hormone, which integrates long-term, short-term memory into long-term memory. It allows the muscle to grow. The same is with psychological tension. The best performers in business, in arts, and in sports follow the growth equation, which is high stress with high, with high rest. So these okay. iterations can give you the resilience to continually stretch your muscles, mental or physical, so you can take up more and more and more, but following it could be shorter periods of stress, but they should be intense and it should be real release. Well, once you're running a business, you feel that the whole thing of 10 years is like one iteration. Mm-hmm. I very much give example in Agile. In Agile, we're learning, we're building software on iterations, right? Mm-hmm. You have a sprint of two weeks, then you do retrospective, replanning for the next sprint. Very often what I see in the growing companies, we have the sprint, uh, it finishes on Friday, we are fixing things on a Sunday, Monday, and we are already in the next, and it's the next and the next and the next. And we are not learning how to be- build these micro moments of rest and switching off. I interviewed recently, a couple of years ago, I was working with, uh, I'll mention his name, if that's okay, you know, he gave me this interview online, Thibaut Tatinger, the founder of Puzzle Coworking. Mm-hmm. And he's working very hard and he's somebody that, I mean, obviously people who have worked with him, he, they know this. And I interviewed him, what was his secret? And he basically said sleep. So he always prioritized sleep, no matter he could work like 12 or 14 hours a day. In the evening, he had built this very effective technique to mentally switch off so he can have a very solid and quality sleep. So building those, it could be sleep, meditation, exercise, time of me time journal, whatever it is, allowing your mind also to recover and to mentally switch off 
is very fundamental. And what happens in startups is that we never have this complete switch off experience. We're always on. Mm -hmm. It's always the next thing. It's always we bring our whole problems home and the mind is working. The so-called you, you are tired but wired. Yeah. And this is what makes it chronic over time. Mm -hmm. It's not the crisis. There is a beautiful saying, we're all, all idiots are great in crisis, but we suffer in daily life. So it's about building these individual rituals, but also with our teams to rotate high stress with high rest. That's, that's the beauty of thing because <clears throat> high stress, it has its, you know, it mobilizes, it excites mm -hmm. us, but it should be, you know, short term on mm -hmm. interventions. I, you know, I, I, mean? I don't know how um, real that is for other entrepreneurs but i personally sometimes get really afraid that i might be leading the whole organization to a burnout mm. and it's very weird sometimes i wonder is it somehow connected to how i feel and i'm just projecting on my team or um especially in the remote culture is very difficult mm. to grasp who is where right now you know who has the good stress who has the bad stress i mean it's clear that it's going to be stressful yeah um but how do you develop that as a leader towards your uh, teammates i find it extremely difficult it is it is definitely difficult because it's um we are always subconsciously projecting our experiences onto our colleagues and the first thing is we need to know that our every behavior every word we say and every word we don't say it has a weight even if we have this complete flat structure if everybody feels like the whole team if there is like the founder is there with the team we have to realize as leaders even if we are five people our role model our example has an imprint has an impact mm -hmm. whether mm -hmm. we like it or not and it's about embracing this responsibility so I have seen different cases. I have seen cases in where the, burn, the lack of boundaries and unpreparedness and willingness of the founder to manage stress or inability to manage his or her emotions. You could see that this pattern, that the leader has this pattern and this is setting an example and this is what his colleagues perceive as a formula for success because mm -hmm. he's the father, he's the role model figure. So if this is how things are done in the startup, so I should be like that. I have seen this model where the model is replicated. I have okay. seen another situation where because the founder has a paternalistic or savior style of leadership, he's assuming usually he's lacking boundaries. He's saving everybody else. It's a wall of his shoulders. Well, actually, his or her employees are like, you know, saving <laughs> at five. Would they know the leader going to take care of it? They know if they fail, they're good. he's going to jump in with the call with the client and solve everything. So I've seen the other dynamic that the, the, the founder is assuming much more and is, he's protecting and shielding the team, which is also not a healthy dynamic. So I guess it's about having a clear conversation and ob ob observing how people are really. Mm -hmm. There are different tools uh, that uh, are out there. Our partners from Camp Light develop a beautiful tool which is free. You can measure the emotional climate during sync meetings, especially mm -hmm. for remote teams. And it's a great way to see how people are emotionally over time and use this as a startup, uh, as a start for a conversation in a one-on-one -on -one setting. So uh, we have to be conscious. And another thing, maybe we have to, we have to see whether we're doing certain, certain things for our employees, for our colleagues or for ourselves mm -hmm. in terms of boundaries, decisions, leadership style. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. <clears throat> so am I trying to protect them 
or am I trying to take off their plate because they really need it or because I need it in order to mm. I'm giving it's it's very it's very interesting um how we often give others exactly the thing that we need and cannot give ourselves. <laughs> That's it. We usually we become the leaders that we never had or we wanted to mm-hmm. have for ourselves. And of course we also become the the parents whose love we the parent whose love we crave the most. Yeah. As little and we integrate that figure and we replicate and project it into our work relationships as well. Mm-hmm. Or the other way, other thing we've seen I've very often seen when we go in the deeper level I've seen founders who actually have a problem with the father figure for example they had a very poor connection with the father is the rejected father uh, family figure mm-hmm. and then they they would do everything possible not to be like the father but once we look at the reality they actually replicate very similar behaviors with their colleagues and it's not about rejecting that family figure it's about integrating and making peace with it mm-hmm. and then their behavior shifts mm-hmm. in the startup so it's sometimes you just have to go deeper on the previous question i i totally subscribe to that mm-hmm. also this is probably one of the reasons why i decided to undergo my way mm-hmm. um it was stemming from a work association work situation yeah. where i think i had therapy before but i never really you know did it in a in a consistent way at some point i would just stop because it was also back then when i was younger it was just way too expensive i just couldn't afford yeah. it to do it for years but i remember at some point where <clears throat> you know someone said you know you need to work on certain topics individually you can't really do it in the organization mm. or with your co-founder or whatever um and with the strong wish also to be a good leader i needed to go back to myself mm. and first understand how am i going to lead myself <laughs> because it was a it was a chaos in in mm. some way i needed to put my self first in some kind of order in order to create a whole organization yeah. and be a role model and still i have a question here so <clears throat> i very much admire i very much admire this to be honest like the way you're speaking openly about this i think this sets a great example irina well um i guess the pain was also huge yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> in my case so um i guess everyone has their own individual path to go i see <clears throat> lately mental health mindfulness mm. are becoming more and more a popular topic mm. anywhere i go i was just yeah. on a retreat last weekend and we all of them were actually leaders of organizations yeah. we were speaking about responsible leadership yeah. um a lot of course to do with um regenerative businesses or businesses that can actually regenerate nature sustainability mm-hmm. these were the topics but when you start talking to the leaders a lot of them would be uh, engaged in some kind of practice of that is helping yeah. them uh, with their interior from psychotherapy up to psychedelics and yeah. you know <laughs> integrating that so i think it is becoming also a uh, a uh, something that is modern but <clears throat> I wonder something else and what would you say? So I think it's inevitable as a leader to have also your difficult periods. Mm-hmm. For me, I always feel like I have this magic mind and sometimes I'm able to manifest certain things with my magic mind, but mm-hmm. at some point it just wears off. Mm-hmm. And in my formula here is um I prefer to stay away also from colleagues so that I don't 
it feels to me sometimes that my mental state is affecting also the others mm -hmm. in the organization. It's like a snowball. Mm -hmm. <laughs> When I'm not feeling well, then it somehow, you know, it creates a certain vibe in the team as well. So how should leaders behave when they're not at their best, when they're actually at their mm -hmm. lowest point? What would you do so that uh, the organization, so that you're responsible towards the organization? Mm. I wonder also, could you rely on your colleagues also to uh, lift you up? Is it the role of teammates mm. um, and employees to support their leaders? I don't know. How do we deal with that? I guess it really depends on the structure of the startup and the culture as well. If you do have co-founders, mm -hmm. that's why we see that's usually a co-founder team of at least two people. They have more resources. It's like in a marriage. It's never 50-50, isn't it? Sometimes one founder is pulling 20 and mm -hmm. the other 80 and then it's, um, it's the other way around. So I would say first, if you do have co-founders who you can lean on in mm -hmm. that moment, it's the co-founders. Our teammates and especially people who are not shareholders in the business, who are employees, um, yeah, we should be very conscious of um, sharing and um, asking them for lifting us up for mm. our, our own purposes because we have to remember what is the purpose of why we are here. Mm -hmm. We're here to do business. I'm creating value. I'm creating jobs for these people. We, why is this? the place for me to get therapy, mm -hmm. we should remember, it depends on what's the culture of the business. I've seen some startups that are completely like, you know, a family and they share mm -hmm. everything. They know who slept with whom and da, 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 da. Uh, so, but, but usually we have to remember that, as I said, an entrepreneur is some, someone who assumes responsibility. And there are moments, of course, where we are weak and we should lean in and, and we can get support, at least emotional understanding from our employees as well, our colleagues. But if we see that consistently we are oversharing, we're looking for this emotional support somewhere where it's not its place, mm -hmm. that's the moment to look up in the mirror and find support in your mentors, in mm -hmm. your advisors, in a coach or a therapist. I would say how much you need to share when you're not in the right state as a leader. In order to get the answer to this question, you need to ask what is what information my colleagues need from that about that so that they can go on with their business and mm -hmm. they can be okay mm -hmm. am i sharing to vent and to feel understood or i share because i want to avoid misunderstanding i'll give example of one i think he was the ceo of an, uh, an american bank who I, i read about him in the, the book the strengths-based leadership by gallup where um, that person had a very difficult moment in his career while he was serving as a CEO. Uh, his wife uh, got breast cancer in a very later stage. Mm -hmm. So, of course, this affects the whole family system. And he was very aware that this is going affect, to affect his emotions and his cognitive abilities and his mm -hmm. sleep and, and everything in the next six months ahead. And then he was very strategic about what he shares with, his co with, with the other leaders, but also with the rest of the company. Uh, so that people would know, first, what does it mean for them? If I'm in a bad mental st state as a startup, what does it mean for my co how much they can rely on when I'm going to be available? Are going to be times when I'm going to mm -hmm. be absent? They need to know the <clears throat> reason. Yeah. So if I have to share about my own experience in mental state, 
I should always try to share with my colleagues as much as they need to know for their value and the, the benefit of the business so everybody can go on. Because at that point, what you really need as a founder is your business going well, right? Mm. If you're in a bad state, you don't want to transfer. You need to, if the, if the company is going okay, you need this healthy wheel to go on, to take, to take you through your difficult moment, even if you have a personal, if you're going through a divorce or something in your personal life. Yeah, they don't want to create cascades. You don't want to which... cascade it. So <laughs> yeah, of course. share as much <coughs> as you think will be valuable for your colleagues I to know. I was actually very inspired by um, a leader of a company that I talked recently, mm. and he's been going through different phases of depression in his life. Mm. It is something that is just part of life. And mm. of course, every now and then it just happens. Yeah. But I think for the first time in the last phase, he decided that he's going to be speaking openly about it. Mm. And he actually said to the colleagues and to the organization that, look, I'm going to go through a depressive state. Mm. I don't know how long it is going to take, Yeah. but I might not pop up in many meetings. I exactly. might not be available. Don't be scared. I yeah. just need to find my way to deal with it. Um, and it actually, he went through the whole phase very fast mm. com in comparison to other periods, yeah. but he was open about it. One, this is what I'm saying. 100% okay. be open about it um, and share what people can expect from you. Mm. But being open to the extent that is, is valuable and useful for the people around you. Mm -hmm. If you're too open, like, as I said, if you're too open in a way that, in a way that you're venting and you're searching for getting emotional support, maybe you have overshared. But if you're open and honest about what people can expect from you, mm -hmm. how this is going to affect his mood and, and their interactions, people have the right to know. And the best way is really to be authentic. And this is what the CEO did as well. He shared the journey. He shared how he was feeling. And he was very authentic about how this is going to impact his working hours, his moods potentially, so that people around you wouldn't be, as you say, suspicious. Oh, why is he upset right now? Or why he's not here? And a lot of the times we create movies in our heads that are very far from reality so mm -hmm. the authentic way is the best way to go mm -hmm. to an extent that is valuable and useful for your colleagues we're at the end of the conversation but that's a question that right mm -hmm. now i feel like i cannot not ask and that's the question okay. of authenticity because i think yeah. a lot of it is actually related to that yeah um so we have established these models of what a startup founder looks like, mm. smells like, and <laughs> dresses like, and, and so on and so forth, which don't really help us sometimes. I think they're also partially one of the reasons why we some of the leaders are moving straight to burnout at mm. some point. It is totally unrealistic. Um, we have established in our heads also from early child what a mother and a father of organization yeah. would actually look like. So we kind of like start unconsciously replicating the models of our parents. In this quest, still we know that the best leaders are usually the, those who are the authentic ones, who have mm. in some way actually found their essence and they're living it in their mm. role. What is your best tip for that mm -hmm. without reading all the biographies of the successful, you know, CEO founders and, uh, I don't know, leaders mm -hmm. that we know of today, how do you find your authentic leader in you? And it's regardless if you're a woman or a man, because I think this is again, a next level of complexity 
um, we don't need to tap into the into this topic right now. But how do you go to your authentic self and realize it also as a leader? Maybe the one thing I can recommend, and I still recommend for myself, is having quiet time with yourself. There was a French philosopher who said that some of the biggest problems in the world came from a person's inability to stay quiet in a room by themselves. Regardless of what works for you, meditation, therapy, whatever, sometimes even just journaling or having your coffee quiet in the morning for a couple of minutes by yourself. I think this is scarce right now. Me time, mm-hmm. quality me time in the quiet uh, with my thoughts, with my body sensations, with my gut, mm-hmm. interception, not only introspection, but interception, looking with the senses inward, mm-hmm. what's happening. I think this is, this is very expensive, very difficult to find, but I think it makes the biggest difference to connect with this authentic self, having those even few minutes a day to be by yourself. I love that. Mm. I love that. You know, it made me also thinking of all the tools that we're using for communication and how I think, especially as a leader, because you're kind of like a demanded person from all sides. (laughs) You just wake up and your inbox is full. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And you constantly feel like you need to respond. Wow. Okay. Um, I feel like we could go on. I... (laughs) Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> but still, I actually promise you me that me we will be finished by yeah. by now. Um, so I guess we might consider doing a second episode, which could be also a bit yeah. more focused on on other topics. This was more like a, an introduction into yeah. the topics. Um, I'm going to finish maybe like that, because you were speaking about the mission. Mm-hmm. And how we actually also strongly identify with the mission. So from not your therapy, <laughs> um, what is your mission? Where do you want to, um, how do you want to contribute to a better world? I'm going to phrase it like that. Mm-hmm. I personally first want to create understanding in Bulgaria about these topics. So mm. I'm starting local, um, mm. trying to be a bit more <laughs> humble maybe here. I would love to have an impact in the world and change the world, but I want to start changing my environment. No, Bulgaria is part of the world. Like I see these specifics in Bulgaria, in our com- my community is the IT in the entrepreneurship world. Mm-hmm. I want to start leaving an impact there. I want to see more companies where people are happy, more leaders who have great success in making money, making an impact, uh, but having healthy families and mm-hmm. uh, enjoying and the way. And not three burnouts not, behind. Not burnout, no depression, okay. not bipolar, because we spoke only about mm-hmm. uh, burnout, but there are lots of research actually showing that, you know, there are other mental health conditions very often associated with the entrepreneurship part, like anxiety, ADHD, mm-hmm. uh, substance abuse, bipolar. Just burnout is the most, is like the hottest topic, but just many more others. Mm-hmm. And I wish it's a different way, starting here locally. And um, yeah, and I do see, because we are also, 
a very lifestyle orient. I mean, we, we are very ambitious, but I still think we are this bohemic culture that we enjoy having time with friends. We enjoy our beautiful nature. We enjoy having great food and drinks. And I believe it's in our core Bulgarians to enjoy life. And I want to see more entrepreneurs who succeed and make an impact into the bigger world, but they're still true to this core that we are enjoying life. Mm-hmm. And um, my mission is really to show this pathway and to go through this pathway for myself and with my clients, for themselves and with their businesses. Because most of my my friends work in those companies. Uh, my children will one day work in those companies. So I want, I want this reality. And uh, I think it's going to have a ripple effect because I see a lot of talented entrepreneurs and minds creating world impact from Bulgaria. So, mm-hmm. and I see some of my clients, they're consulting on software issues there. Uh, their clients, but very often they consult them on organizational issues. on <laughs> So I do believe that certainly this mindset is this knowledge is also transferring uh, worldwide. And it's permeating the, actually every aspect of our life lately, yeah. isn't it? it it's, it's how I feel at least. Yeah. Yeah. I <coughs> anyway. And yeah, sometimes we talk about business and how difficult it is of being, you know, an entrepreneur or a founder. And what we really talk about are exactly these mental health issues. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I, I wanted, if we have an interview 10 years later, like from now on in 10 years, I would love us to talk about more about entrepreneurship and joy. Yeah. Entrepreneurship and a building family, how they go together yeah. and, you know, more on the positive side. So, yeah, prevention and enjoyment. That's, uh, that's actually a good goal. Yeah. Let's do the next one. Yes. A more joyful one. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Verena. Thank you for being here Thanks and also so joining the podcast. Um, I'm sure that uh, we will continue the discussion at some point in the podcast, but also maybe with other activities. I have some things in mind sure. because I admire your mission and I believe it's an important one. And uh, I'm curious myself. <laughs> Thank you. I'm excited about this as well. And if you are just as passionate about innovation as we are, hit subscribe for the Recursive Podcast on YouTube or your favorite podcast platform. We're everywhere.